Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to patron emails. But before we do that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle, and I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. This email is from patron Amanda. Amanda writes, Hi, Kirk. I am just getting back in the field after many years since grad school. I'm studying for the National Counselor Exam, and I'm thinking I should probably get the DSM-5. However, my study guide says there's been a lot of controversy about the DSM-5, and some professionals are recommending that we don't use it at all. Now that it's been out a few years, are therapists really sticking with the DSM-4 as opposed to the DSM-5? I was in school in the late 90s, so I still have the DSM-4. Or is the DSM-5 necessary for insurance billing? What do you recommend? Also, side question, how much do marriage and family therapists use the DSM? Good questions here. Um, yeah, for a time, some clinicians were still using the DSM-4. So DSM-5, so DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's the, the Bible that all mental health professionals use when diagnosing. It's a very thick tome. It, it's very expensive. Actually, let me look up how much it costs. So on Amazon here, it retails at what looks to be $33. Is that right? My goodness. It was so much more expensive when it first came out. Yeah, it was like $120 when it first came out. But it's there's several people selling used ones for as low as $20. So, so really, you know, I'm sure the used ones are fine since this just came out in 2013, five years ago. So for twenty dollars you can get you can get one. So, but if you want a new one, I, I can't tell. It's like the pricing is kind of weird on Amazon. It looks like it's probably one thirty new, one twenty new. Anyway, so you know it's not super cheap, but it's not super expensive. I mean, there's there's textbooks in graduate school that are way more expensive than that. But yeah, so f- for a time at, when DSM five came out in twenty thirteen. Some clinicians were like, uh, do I really have to invest the money and buy the new DSM-5 or should I just keep using the DSM-4? Because the DSM-5 doesn't change it the game that much. Um, so, you know, but that was for a couple years and my experience, at least anecdotally, and I haven't looked at the research and I don't know if there is research, but uh, in my experience, everyone's using DSM-5 now. Um but I'm sure, like I said, some clinicians have still, you know, not bought it because they probably just don't need to. Um, regarding you, Amanda, buying DSM-5, I, I really can't tell if you need it or not. It really just depends on what your responsibilities are and, and your job and all this kind of stuff. The codes are different in DSM-5, and some of the diagnoses have changed significantly. But it, I could see some clinicians getting by without it. You know, for example, a private practice therapist who doesn't use insurance, they they wouldn't need it at all, really. But honestly, Amanda, since you're taking the counseling exam, I'm almost positive that there will be at least a number of like five questions-ish that will be on the DSM. And um, likely the questions are going to uh, be on, you know, the information is going to be in the DSM-5. I think the licensing exams, the, the national exams, often will test your knowledge of the new DSM. So you probably need it for that. Uh, plus, it's only $20 used. Plus, it's not, you know, um, 
uh, you can always just borrow someone's, I suppose, but um, I, I would recommend getting it. I mean, one, uh, you need it for the exam. Two, if you're just starting in the profession, presumably you're not going to stop after a few years. You're going to be in it for at least 10, 20 years. And, you know, a $20 investment spread out over that time is probably okay. Plus, you know, you really just have to consider your, you know, question yourself in terms of how serious you are taking this this profession, you know, is it is it a serious thing that you're doing or are you just like um kind of half half fasting it? <laughs> <laughs> and you know if you're if you're into it uh you know a little bit of expenditure i would imagine would be existentially worth it regarding marriage and family therapists yeah they totally use the dsm just as much as any other mental health professional but many marriage and family therapists don't treat severe mental illnesses or don't see a wide variety of different mental disorders in their practices so they typically don't need the dsm as much um you know, marriage and family therapists like myself tend to get much easier clients, clients who are wanting to work on relationships and this kind of thing. But but having said that, some marriage and family therapists are absolutely working in settings where uh, the clients have significant mental disorders, so it's hard to generalize. Um, having said that, there are probably there's probably anecdotally there's probably a larger percentage of marriage and family therapists per capita who completely reject the notion of mental illness. But that group seems to be getting smaller every day, which I honestly kind of miss. <laughs> um, I feel like our profession is losing a bit of its diversity that it used to have when I first entered it in the 90s. And even in the 90s, I think it was already sort of losing its soul, so to speak. I find that all the mental health professions are really conforming to the norm in a lot of ways. And there's not a lot of these avant-garde, pushing the envelope sort of thinking that I used to see it back in the day. I mean, there's pros and cons to that because, you know, being super out, thinking outside the box, you have a lot of cranks and a lot of weirdos. But on the other hand, you have a lot of risk-taking and a lot of creativity. So anyway, um, uh, that's what I have to say about that. Let's read another email here. No, actually, what I want to talk about is I saw the movie Harvey, uh, and I wanted to talk about it here. It's a movie from 1950. For some people, it's a beloved movie, you know, Harvey. It has James Stewart in it. And um, if you're if you know James Stewart, <laughs> then you know I'm talking about. But um, uh, it's a movie about this guy, played by James Stewart, who is a simple guy, and he's really happy, and he has this imaginary bunny uh, called Harvey, who is like seven feet tall and is his best friend, and always and 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 James Stewart is the only one who can see him and hear him, and Harvey always has something funny to say, and it's sort of like a Mr. Magoo cartoon or a Forrest Gump movie, in that you know James Stewart plays a character who's mentally ill, and everyone sort of feels sorry for him but at the same time he's the only person in the town who's really happy because he just doesn't really buy into all the social norms he's he's not uh, in the rat race of life and he he's he's just much happier but anyway 1950 movie um it's interesting to talk about on the show here because it deals a lot with mental illness right and it has a you know if 
it's a it's a pleasant movie. It's quaint. It came out my god 68 years ago, which is just amazing to think about. But so if it, if it came out today, it would be pretty uh criticized for the way it deals with mental illness. You know, it basically conflates mental illness with um being slow in life or something. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but it it's a very odd mental disorder that's being presented. Um, anyway, the, he ends up in this inpatient psych, psychiatric hospital, and we hear a couple psychiatrists and a nurse talk about uh, James Stewart's character, and there's this all this weird language that they're using. And I, I don't know if it was just Hollywood making up language or if this is how they talked in 1950 because this is you know 1950 when you think about it it's just like a, in terms of psychiatry and psychotherapy and psychology just like ancient times to some extent um i mean freud had just died recently and anyway so the there's some weird phrases that i jotted down here one was third degree hallucinating <laughs> so you know i don't know if this is hollywood or this is the way people talked back then but you could hallucinate in the third degree, which I didn't really know what that meant. And they also called James Stewart a psychopath, which I'm positive is Hollywood making something up because psychopath has, I think what they meant was psychotic. But um, anyway, in, in this inpatient, they're very rough with the patients. They uh, basically, James Stewart's aunt gets mistaken for someone with a mental disorder and they they rough her up. They strip her naked. I think they like make her bathe against her will. They ba- and the police basically support it. And again, I don't know if this is Hollywood or if this is the way psychiatric units were back then. But basically, if a doctor said you were crazy, they had full control over your life, and the police would support it. You, you could just do anything you wanted to. And so this aunt, without really any proper assessment, gets mistaken for someone with a mental disorder, and then. She just gets basically imprisoned and tortured in some ways. Uh, it's all played up for laughs, but when I was watching, I was like, God, I hope people weren't treated this way. But, you know, uh, they could have been. One flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of stuff. The most striking thing about this movie is that it's super sexist. They treat all women very badly, and it's just so interesting to see that change over the years, right? We watch movies from the 80s, and you see the sexism in it, whereas when I was in the 80s, I didn't see any sexism in it, because I just didn't know, um, you know, I didn't, I, w- I wasn't woke yet about sexism the way I, I am today, and also, uh, everyone just thought, well, yeah, that's pretty normal, and I'm guessing in another 20, 30 years, we're going to look back at movies today, and we're going to be like, huh, that's a little sexist. So, so you know, times that times a hundred, and go back to 1950 in this movie, that the way in which women are dealt with these characters is so, it, it's so obviously sexist. The, you know, you have this aunt who is nagging and fussing and controlling, and then the aunt's daughter, she, all she wants to do is get married and and have status, and she's. You know, that's all she wants. She doesn't have any other sides to her. And then this nurse, who is supposed to be one of the main sort of sympathetic women in the movie, she's super subservient to this male psychiatrist. And all she wants is romance. She she has no agency. And she basically just kind of gets carted around and, and uh, is sort of the love object of 
the psychiatrist and of James Stewart's character sort of interchangeably. And the way they write it in this movie is this, this psychiatric nurse is just, a, she's just available to anyone who will love her. And she, you know, she, she just wants some man to take her. And what, if it's the psychiatrist, then great. And if it's James Stewart, then great. And it, and it's, it's, she, she just doesn't have a mind. She's basically just kind of like a child. And some of these scenes between the, the nurse and the doctor are just so cringeworthy. Now, I don't doubt this is how women were treated back then, but in the movie, it, it's really hard to watch, actually. Um, but overall, overall, I thought it was funny. Uh, whenever I watch old movies, I'm, I'm always a little worried that I'm going to be bored or something, and I wasn't bored during this movie. I thought it, it, James Stewart really pulls it off. The whole Harvey thing is, is cute, and you know, there's some kind of funny twists and turns and it's a it's an interesting look into 1950s culture to some extent too because they go down to this bar and they like to have drinks there but the way people talk about this bar it's like not good i think it's because it's still kind of on the heels of prohibition or something you know the the women seemingly don't drink and they sort of look down at people who do drink alcohol it's just interesting how our attitudes about alcohol now wouldn't really be that way i mean certainly there are people who think that way about alcohol but it's much more mainstream i guess um you know it's a classic movie classic american movie um but one thing I didn't like, and I, you know, I, I can't spoil a 68-year movie, but the ending I didn't like because the whole movie, you're basically being told that Harvey is imaginary and that James Stewart is perhaps a little stressed out about something. I, I, did he? Did someone die in his life? I I don't remember, but he. The whole movie is basically making. Harvey out to just be just be an imaginary friend for James Stewart, something that James Stewart invented. But then midway through the movie, they sort of hint that Harvey is real. And then at the end of the movie, they basically say that Harvey is real, <laughs> as if he were this actual spirit or, or mischievous angel of some kind, which is, I thought, I hate it when writers do that. I would, I, I much... I, I, I love when writers make stories where you don't know and it keeps it in the realm of reality. Because basically, if you just took Harvey in terms of how it's written, especially at the end, basically, this is a science fiction movie or a fantasy movie. It's, it's, a, it's a movie about a in which in this, in this world, in the movie of Harvey, there are spirits who actually exist and and you can and actually only reveal themselves to certain people and there's an actual seven foot tall invisible uh, bunny that's walking around and talking to people it's just like uh okay but overall it's it's good and and again for some people that this is one of their favorite movies one of my friends actually said this is you know one of his favorite movies of all time Okay, let's go on to another email here. We have an email from patron Jack. This email goes back two years, or one and a half years. So I'm finally getting to it, patron Jack. Maybe, maybe you're not a patron anymore. I don't know, but you wrote, Hi, Kirk. I'm frequently seeing cases where young sons are engaging in a domestic violence relationship with their mothers after the perpetrating father has left the family. 
This seems to be the trend in my community. Are you seeing this trend? What do you think this kind of rela- why do you think this kind of relationship develops? I find that the parents and even other professionals in my field are slow to call this domestic violence. I often see parents being referred to parenting skills training instead of other more useful forms of therapy because it is often seen as a failure of the parent. So that's your email patron, Jack. Yeah, absolutely. It's a common problem that's rarely talked about, uh, and it's often blamed on parenting skills. In it, you know, when you have a violent child that is terrorizing their parents, it's often ninety nine. of the time in society anyway, it's seen as like, how come you don't have control over your kid? And as a family therapist who worked with lots of families like this, I can tell you that the parenting skills have maybe something to do with it. Uh, You know, maybe it's a small factor. Maybe the the parenting skills had something to do with its development. But the, uh, the solution is not for the parents necessarily to change the way they react you know i and and you know however the child got there to say they're you know 12 13 14 years old and they're terrorizing their parents however they got there we could speculate but once they're in that in that position and and they've crossed that line and they've started to actually beat their parents or at the very least threaten and scare them, you know, like getting a knife and saying, I'm going to kill you. If you, if you don't, you know, if you don't give me back my Xbox, I'm going to go get a knife and I'm going to kill you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get you in the middle of the night or something, or I'm going to burn this house down. And the kids will exhibit behaviors that will tell you that, you know, he might be serious about that. And, and this can be girls too, uh, girl, teenage children, uh, girls uh, can absolutely also be terrorizing. So it's not just boys. Um, and yeah, society doesn't look at it right. And as a consequence, our profession doesn't look at it right. And sometimes and they, the society tends to look at kids who are misbehaving as just like, well, why don't you just get control of that? Because a lot of parents have who have kids, their kids are just naturally, the, the kids naturally behave well. And so there's this myth that it's just like, well, all, if you have a misbehaving kid, all you have to do is just parent better. And I, you know, and sometimes that's absolutely true, but sometimes it is not true. <laughs> there are kids out there that just, no matter how awesome your parenting is, they do not change their behavior because children are, they're, um, they have willpower. And if they decide to, you know, not let you get your way, then you are not going to get your way. If if they decide that they're going to drive the situation down the tubes, then the situation is going down the tubes and it there's nothing you can do about it as a parent. And as a family therapist who has tried to change that pattern and been unsuccessful, I'm here to tell you that it's, you know, children have free wills. So, you know, the whole notion of just like, well, all you got to do is change your parenting implies that children have no free will. It implies that like, children would never make a choice to be a bad kid unless there was some kind of reason that the parents were presenting. But I'm here to tell you, some kids, you know, we could argue about the development of how they got there um, and speculate about that. Maybe there's a maybe there's a reasonable reason, like they were traumatized or abused or abandoned or, or something. Or maybe they even went through a sickness or maybe their mom went through a bout of depression when they were young or something. What Whatever the developmental cause. But once they get there, 
it, it can be really hard to change if if not downright impossible if the child decides to dig their heels in. So, yeah, absolutely, um, Patron Jack, you're you're right on with that. Yeah, I've treated many families with children who are uh, violent perpetrators, um, and it's um, it's a rough it's a rough situation. Um, parents are ashamed. You know, if you're in a if you're in a violent relationship and you're being terrorized by your spouse, there are recourses you can take. You can go to domestic violence or intimate partner violence shelters. You can get a no contact order. You can get a divorce. You can you know you know pack the kids into the car and drive away. But when it's your own child, what do you do? You can't divorce your child. You can't um, abandon your child. You have responsibilities to your child. And there are ways, there's things legally you can do, like a chins petition, this kind of stuff, but they're really limited. And so in a lot of ways, you're, you're stuck with that kid. Um, th- there, are, there are opportunities sometimes, like if the kid agrees to go to their aunt's or a friend's house even, but that means that these other people have to deal with that kid. So, um, so it's tough. Now, Patron Jack, you're asking if I've seen this trend. Uh, I haven't. I, I, I'd be interested in the in the research. I would suspect that the rates are the same as they have been since my, the beginning of my career 20 years ago. But that's just anecdotal. Um, it, it's Maybe it's on the rise in your community for some reason. I don't know. But it was definitely prevalent 20 years ago. In fact, if I went anecdotally, I would say it was more prevalent 20 years ago because that was when I was working with that population more. But I suspect that that's just a, you know, artifact of the fact that I don't have clients like this so much anymore. Um, you're asking Patron Jack how this develops. Well, it, in general, it's a, there's many different paths, but the main one is an internal, the one that I saw a lot was an internalization of the abuser. These people would, and actually you kind of describe this, you're saying that, you know, the perpetrating father will, so a, a domestically violent father will leave the family and then a, uh, a son will take on the role of a domestic violent perpetrator against the mother. And so the son has been slowly internalizing a violent, abusive, terrorizing uh, you know, father. And then when the time comes, that behavior comes out. And there's a lot of different theory around that. But the, the main one that I follow is that when you're five and you're watching your father beat your mother, you are terrorized and you have, you have sort of some limited choices regarding how you deal with that internally, psychologically. You can reject your father and say, I hate my father and I reject him. And I, I, um, and in that situation, you are perhaps even further terrorized because not only are you scared of your father, but you're also kind of like, I guess I don't have a father, which is very scary to young people. Young people would rather have a bad father than no father. Young people would rather have a, you know, a, a bad parent than no parent. And so it's very scary. So the other choice that children have when they're watching their father beat their mother is to say, well, uh, maybe the behavior is justified. 
maybe it's okay somehow. And so the, the psyche begins to play these mental tricks of just like, well, maybe sometimes it's okay to be that way. And, you know, it's, it's something you don't always want to do, but maybe under certain circumstances. So the, the child tries to make excuses for the father, um, and this is all unconscious, to try to reconcile the fact that this, this father whom he loves is doing this behavior. So it's, it's this mental trickery. Or another sort of conclusion is like, well, maybe my mom deserves it. You know, maybe my mom deserves to be hit that way. So the child is put in this very strange position where they're really forced to make these very weird conclusions in order to hold on to the attachment that they want to have with each of the parents. And then once they become older, all those assumptions start to manifest in violence and terror. So that is that patron Jack. It's tough work, as I said, and yeah, really should be treated like a domestic violence situation, but in the context of a child toward a parent. And the, I guess specifically, I have found success with the following steps. One is, is that I establish to everyone that violence from, you know, from anyone on anyone is unacceptable and that the police should be called. And the police are not going to be happy when they show up most now, some police, when they respond to stuff like this, they don't care. They're just like, you know, get control of your kid, woman. You know what's wrong with you. But a lot of police officers are like, what? Your your son was threatening you with a knife? Well, you know, it's really the only response you can have. You know, we can get into the family therapy implications and all those kinds of things as well, which are obvious, you know, something you want to engage in. But but when I would enter families like this, I would just I would just say, look, the violence has to stop and the threats have to stop because we can't we can't try to heal from the past. We can't try to work on anything if some of the members of this family are walking around terror, you know, um, afraid that they're going to get killed or beat or something like that just has to end now. Because again, Maslow's hierarchy, right? Safety is at the bottom. You need you need safety and, and shelter. You, you need those things before you can start to think about higher-minded things like closeness and attachment and healing and stuff. And so that, that would take a while because it's hard for a mother to uh, accept that it's a viable option to call the police on their own child. It's very hard, particularly for marginalized families who have already been targeted by police unfairly anyway. And so they're just like, what? You know, I, I don't call the police even if there's a regular crime. I'm surely not going to call the police on my own child. But then I, you know, pull the parent aside and I say, look, the police, here's what they're likely to do. Um, and they're not, what they're not going to do is take your kid away from you. Uh, and what they're not going to do is lock your kid up for life. What they are going to do um, is, at the very least, uh, put a little bit of fear into the child of just like, look, there's a line and you can't cross it. You can't hit your mother. That's just unacceptable. Um, uh, and, you know, if they're going to respond, then maybe they'll charge the child with assault four and the child will go through some. Uh, minor court situations and be assigned therapy and maybe community service. So, you know, it's not the sort of thing kids get locked up for. Um, So uh, I explain that to parents and they're like, oh, I guess that doesn't sound so bad. So if, you know, as long as the 
the legal system isn't going to take my child away. Okay, maybe I'll call the police next time. Sometimes all it takes is the threat. You know, sometimes the parent will just say, look, if this continues, I'm going to call the police. So you better back off and give me my space. You better leave my bedroom, give me my, give me my space, go to your room, calm down, or I'm calling the cops. And so um, that's often all that's needed. Uh, also, my involvement as a family therapist is sometimes all that's needed because the kid will be on their best behavior because they know I'm going to find out about it and they have this sort of perception I'm somehow connected to the system of which I usually am not. But anyway, um, so so you got to end the violence right away. That just has to be addressed. And then from there, you start trying to heal from the wounds. Everybody, they have been through a lot. They had a father in the family who was violent. And there's there's been some damage. There's been some wounds. There's been some fear. And maybe PTSD, maybe other tra- traumatic reactions, maybe dissociation. I mean, that's a whole other possibility that's probably very likely to be present with some of these boys is they have literal PTSD. And when they are threatened, their distress level spikes. They essentially freak out and they come out swinging. Uh, violence, uh, PTSD in, in males can often manifest in violence. And, um, you know, the, the movie Manchester by the Sea, if, you, if you've seen it, when there, there are moments where the main character, uh, played by uh, Casey Affleck, when he seems to kind of freak out and just, just become like randomly violent. And it, that it's possible that the traumas that he's been through with his own, you know, family uh, led to him having a neurological reality that when he's triggered, he freaks out and has a fight or flight response. And males are socialized to uh, be violent in situations like that. And so, um, you know, that's another possibility. Anyway, so let's take a break. And when we get back, let's read more patron emails. All right, we're back from the break. Um, as always, I will employ you, if you haven't already, become a patron on patreon.com. When you, when you become a patron, you get access to all of our patron-exclusive episodes. And, but, more, but more importantly, I would think that you get the good feeling that you are supporting something that you like. I support podcasts that I listen to, and uh, I, it makes me feel really good. Um, I love listening to podcasts, and it just seems like only fair that I, um, you know, contribute a little bit to the cause. Uh, the vast majority of the income that I get from this podcast is from Patreon. So, um, if you're if if you're if you like this podcast, then it'd be great. Plus, also, if we get to our next Patreon goal, then we'll open up a scholarship fund for a for listeners. Like I don't know, once every year or six months or something we take applications for scholarships for people who need tuition money how about that also buy my book multi-role clinical supervision again my book on amazon.com is called multi-role clinical supervision if you're a supervisor then obviously it would apply to you if you are someone who works with teaching um therapist, I would imagine it would help. As a if if you're a therapist starting out yourself and you are just entering supervision, I've been told that it, it is a helpful book for that too, because you kind of learn what to do 
how to use supervision well. I even have a chapter in the book that gives some advice to supervisees regarding how they can use supervision well and how they can advocate for themselves. Because the one of the main theses of the book is that there are a lot of really terrible supervisors in our profession, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, there, There's very few uh, who I have experienced who are actually like good supervisors and useful. And then so it's sort of a bell curve where you have like, in my, I've had like 20-ish supervisors in my career who have supervised me. And I've had a few who have been awesome, like some of the best mentors of my entire life. And then I've had about five who have been abusive to me, just horribly, traumatically horrible to me. And then I've had about 10 who are sort of in the middle, who are basically just worthless and you know, a waste of time. And, and, you know, I was basically just meeting some sort of requirement and I had to meet with them. And so, uh, as a, if you're entering the field and you are headed into supervision, there's things you can watch out for because I didn't know what I was heading into. I, when I started out in the profession, I thought all supervisors were awesome. Uh, I just, I just had this thought, well, it's like, geez, you're a therapist. That means you're already super awesome. And boy, you're a supervisor of therapists, man, you must be like one of the best people on the planet. You must be super wise. You must, you know, have your counter-transference down. You must be really empathetic. You must be like really compassionate. And let me tell you, that is not the case. Uh, they are, <laughs> therapists are totally regular human beings. You have some extremely horrible human beings who happen to be therapists and and you know with all the emails that i get from you guys out there talking telling me about your experiences in therapy um, some of which are mediocre and useless but some of which are just downright abusive right we've done whole episodes on that and you just realize like man like our field is is you know and it makes sense right it's just you have the regular bell curve of humanity in in our profession um the notion that every single therapist is somehow this this superhuman is, you know, of course, ridiculous, right? So anyway, uh, my book, Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. Also join the Facebook fan group. Uh, I don't go there, but it's a good active group for the fans. Also join, like our Facebook page so you can participate in our Tuesday Tougher Bluff games. Those are always fun. Also, if you're looking for an archive of all the episodes, go to the website. Also, we have our 10-year show in August 2018. I've asked Umberto to lock down the date on that. Um, yeah. Um, now, getting back to patron Amanda's email, I'm realizing now that I might not have answered Amanda's question entirely. Um, Amanda was asking about the controversy regarding DSM-5. Yeah, uh, whenever you know the new DSM comes out, there's always a lot of articles and commentaries written about how the DSM is a crock of shit and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it does, DSM-5 isn't any more of a crock of shit or any less of a crock of shit than any other DSM. But um, there's really no controversy around the DSM. Uh, if, if you look on the internet, certainly it might seem as though there are. But in, in the mental health field, there's no controversy about it. Certainly, it, there are people who uh, will talk shit about it. But but if you're a clinician, you have to use it. It's just in order to get paid by insurance companies, you, you have to use it. Plus, 
any sort of misgivings anyone has about the the average clinician, any misgivings that they have about the DSM, they're they're just like, yeah, you know, there's some things in there I don't really agree with. Like one of the changes they made to DSM five was they loosened the criteria for addiction, you know, substance use disorders. To the point where, at this point, you I think you only need like two of the symptoms to qualify for a mild case of a substance use disorder. And what that means is that suddenly there's just like a huge amount of people who wouldn't have qualified before who now do qualify for the disorder. And what does that mean for people being forced to go to drug treatment and this kind of stuff and, and, or being labeled as pathological, um, you know, whereas before they wouldn't have been. So it, um, all that just needs to be taken in consideration. And I think people are, so, so there are, you know, quote unquote controversies, but in my circles, people don't really, uh, complain about it. It just has to be understood. The DSM has to be understood as what it is. It is something that is, trying to be based on research and empirical observation, which I would say it for the most part is. It's trying to be a guide for, for psychological conditions. It's not trying to say, look, this is the definitive guide that will never end. It's just saying, well, as of right now, this is our best way of describing certain mental disorders. And even the word disorder needs to be taken in a critical light. You know, what do we mean by disorder? When we label someone's grief as disordered, what do we mean by that exactly? Is that is that a good idea to do? So the DSM is not some kind of um, you know delusional document that, and the authors aren't delusional about what it means. Might they privilege their conclusions a little too much? Sure, but in the in our field, you know, mo- the experts and people who are wise about the DSM, they, you know, they take it with a grain of salt and you use it the way you can, and and you just have to, um, you know, consider all the different angles. Anyway. So let's go on to another email here from an anonymous patron. They write, Is it true that men reach their sexual peak during late adolescence while women come into their own at the ripe age of 35? This myth comes from Alfred Kinsey's data. The questions he asked were for different age groups. He asked, What is the maximum number of orgasms you have in a given week? Kinsey found that a 18-year-old man and a 35-year-old woman were having the most frequent orgasms. So Kinsey apparently found that uh, for men, they had the most orgasms when they were 18, and for women, they had the most orgasms when they were 35. From an evolutionary perspective, a 30-something sexual peak could help maximize reproductive success. However, as we age, testosterone, which many believe is linked to libido, declines. Uh, end of email from anonymous patron. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I actually reached out to a new faculty member that we have hired in the CFT program at Antioch University, Fiona O'Farrell. She is starting a um, sex therapy concentration in the couple and family therapy program. Uh, you know, couple and family therapy. Uh, a slice of our population that comes to us is wanting to talk about sexual issues, whether it's individual or in couples and families. And so 
Fiona O'Farrell is going to add that um, that concentration to our program. And so I reached out to Fiona and asked her, uh, you know, about this email. And she wrote, um, the idea of a sexual peak is somewhat of a myth and linked to some social constructs we have out there. The idea came about connected to the biological course of our bodies. So the idea came about equates our sexual prime years with what we have the highest hormone production. A misconception out there is that testosterone production in men makes them more sexually primed. However, both men and women produce testosterone and can be linked to sexual drive. Another myth out there is that men peak earlier but then plateau uh, as they age uh, through adulthood, um, and then they need Viagra at some point, which is also a myth. Uh, I don't know what she means by that, but anyway. Um, and there's another myth that women peak later in life, but then they dry up when men- menopause hits, and they are no longer producing hormones in the same way. She's saying that's also a myth. Over and over again, we see that the simplified ideas about how, how why, and when people are sexual when really most of those issues are just too dumbed down and based on societal norms. Really, uh, you know, so, so she's saying basically, you know, in, in reality, libido, regardless of whether you're cis male or cis female, it's a complex set of variables that contribute to any person's um, sexual awareness, arousal, or drive. So she, she kind of delineates those three things. You have sexual awareness, you have sexual arousal, and you have sexual, quote-unquote, drive. And she's saying that throughout, a, throughout an individual's lifetime, um, there might be some fluctuation, and gender might have something to do with it, but really it's, uh, it's not a huge factor. She says, I recommend any women or men who want to better understand their sexual mechanisms to read Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. She says, it's a very accessible book and it's very easy to read. So Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. Uh, I imagine that's a play on words. So yeah, um, Fiona is basically saying here that uh, it's way more complex than uh, simply saying that all men peak at 18 and all women peak at 35. Uh, you know, when I look at Kinsey's data that I think came from the 50s, and they found that of the Americans that they surveyed, uh, the men were saying that they remembered having the most orgasms when they were 18. And that for women, they're saying that they didn't have as many orgasms as they did until they were 35. I mean, we could imagine a lot of societal pressures creating that, right? Uh, as opposed to biological pressures, right? You have uh, men who are sort of allowed to, I mean, the overall thing is that, particularly in the past, but even today, everyone is suppressed sexually, you know, it just so happens that women are suppressed even more. And so um, back in the day, you, you know, men are just a little less suppressed, and so therefore a little more able to express themselves sexually through masturbation, whereas women were seen as sluts if they even thought about sex or wanted to have sex. And so it would be very difficult for them to engage in masturbation when they were younger or even sex because of the social conse consequences of that and the internalized 
sexism and internalized shaming around sex. And so maybe it would take until they were 35 to, you know, they get married at 25 and then it takes them 10 years to kind of, um, you know, figure out their bodies. And then by the time they're 35, they're like, oh, now I'm actually fully enjo- fully enjoying my sexual life. The The other thing here is that the number of orgasms you have is just one factor. It's just one data point, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that your drive for sex is the highest when you're having the most orgasms. It might mean that. But you can imagine someone having a lot of orgasms, but they're just bored in life. <laughs> and, you know, they don't have a ton of drive for sex, but it's just like, well, what else do I do with myself right now? Or, um, I don't know, there's just a lot of factors that go into um, how many, you know, what what do we mean by drive? And what do we mean by sexual peak? I think there's this, you know, it, it's, you know, maybe it was from Kinsey's data, but there's a lot of talk in the, you know, lay person realm, where it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, boys are so sexual. And, and, you know, they're just constantly thinking about sex every seven seconds. And it's like, you know, when you actually look at the reality of human beings, they're much more complex than that. And, you know, that's just a story we like to tell ourselves about gender. Men are like, you know, they're like monkeys, they're dogs, they're all they want to do is have sex all the time. Blah, 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 blah. And actually, you know, when you think about, um, and I've talked about this before, the fact that boys um, from an early age are basically told that they are a pussy if they try to get compassion from other people and empathy. You know, they need to be tough and they need to be independent and they need to not depend on their mothers and they need to not be, um, you know, have warmth with their friends. You know, they shouldn't hold hands with their friends and they they should be rough and tumble. And so these boys grow up under under those conditions. And the one uh, physical warmth activity that is socially sanctioned is sex. And so perhaps boys are not any more sex crazed than girls, but uh, sex is just the only socially acceptable manner in which they can get physical warmth. And so maybe that's why they're so, uh, you know, that maybe that's why they talk about sex so, so much and uh, compared to girls, whereas girls, although also um, suppressed in these other ways, uh, just less so than men. And whereas, you know, girls are allowed to express their feelings, you know, by talking and, they're allowed to hold hands with their girlfriends, even though they're not sexually attracted. They're allowed to have, you know, sleepovers and, and you know, they're uh, allowed to maybe cuddle with their parents a little longer because, you know, that's not seen as a horrible thing when a daughter does that. And so maybe that's why girls don't express themselves through sexuality um, in general as much. And, you know, having said that, there are plenty of boys who don't express themselves sexually at all. And there are plenty of young girls who express themselves sexually a lot. So if it has so much to do with biology, how do you explain that, that variance? Right. Um, also as Fiona's pointing out, it's like, there's many, you know, what do we mean by drive? Right. What, what, what exactly does that mean? Um, isn't that pretty contextual? If you're in a new relationship, for example, and you just, you know, you've just fallen in love or you've just discovered a new sexual partner, um, you know, there tends to be a lot more sexual energy, right? A lot more talk about sex, a lot more frequent sex, a lot more um, enjoyment of the novelty of sex for for everybody. So, you know, you could say 
that everyone peaks whenever they first couple with somebody. So, you know, it, it's a bit of a nonsensical thing, that the sexual peak thing. Plus, it, it implies also, as Fiona points out, that as men and women get older, that they no longer have sexual drive and they're no longer sexually viable, which when you actually talk to older people, they'll tell you like, nope, I'm still exactly the same as I was when I was 18. Sure, I'm a little stiff and sure it takes a little longer for uh, an erection to happen or sure it takes, you know, maybe I have to use a, a little bit, you know, every now and then I have to use a little bit of lube, but I, you know, I want sex just as much as I've always wanted sex and if perhaps even more now because, you know, now I don't care about the social norms of, of the day and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, now that's not everybody. It's not like every older person is like, um, you know, thinking that way. But the point is, is that um, we are a really stupid society when it comes to sex, as I always talk about. And of course, we're really stupid about the sexual peak issue and very simplistic about it. And we we're following this old data from Alfred Alfred Kinsey. And it is and it isn't even what Kinsey was saying. All Kinsey was reporting on was when he surveyed people about the most orgasms they had, uh, the average age for men was 18, the average age for women was 35. But that's just average, one, two. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean peak. Um, plus, uh, I'm guessing that they're asking people to remember. You know, if I asked you, listener out there, tell me how old you were when you were having the most orgasms. Like, that would be a hard thing to recall, particularly if you're older, you know? It's like you're, you got to think back, well, I, I don't know, I can see, the, you know, that would be a hard thing to recall, right? So I, I don't know if that was the design of Kinsey's data um, uh, survey. But anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this email is from an anonymous patron. They write, Hi, Kirk, you've talked about how people with borderline tend to find people who are avoidant and that avoidant people can have similar abandonment issues but deal with it in in different ways and that they both suffer. You said you've helped many couples with this. Now my question is, have how have you done this? Can it really be done? And since most of the talk has been from the borderline perspective, how about the other half of the relationship? I have borderline traits, and I am attracted to avoidant men. It would be better to find a securely attached person, I know, but so far it hasn't happened yet. How is it that the avoidant person suffers? How can you connect with them? What can help to understand them better? Is there any chance for a good relationship? Well, anonymous patron, these are very good questions. Yeah, so the theory goes, and I've seen this empirically many times in my practice, that when you have someone with borderline in a couple, they either will couple with someone who is also borderline or with someone who is equally avoidant. Um, you know, I could go into attachment theory and and personality theory and all this stuff. But in general, someone who is borderline in general has likely as a child been abandoned or traumatized in some way that makes them feel very sensitive to rejection, very sensitive to attachments hurting their feelings. So, um, you know, someone as an adult who suffers from borderline, um, when, you know, when they text their partner and they're like, um, hey, you know, you want to hang out tonight? Or, hey, what what are you doing today? And the partner doesn't text them back immediately. The 
the person with borderline becomes very it's it triggers their trauma that they experienced when they were younger about attachments and about being abandoned and about being rejected and the person with borderline will have a visceral response to that and they will be panicking about you know every minute that goes by it's like why hasn't he texted me back does this mean that he's you know cheating on me does this mean he doesn't love me does this mean that our relationship is a sham does this mean i should break up and like no one will ever love me and it 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 gets that severe not for everyone about texting but um but it can be triggered by what from the outside might seem seemingly be very simple things and of course um, obvious moves of rejection can trigger too like say he breaks up with her or something and then you know that can be that's an overt uh, obvious trigger that any that would hurt anyone's feelings but for someone that has trauma regarding rejection and that kind of thing it's it's very very distressing you know to the point of suicide so um, so that's the borderline person the avoidant person likely grew up in a very similar environment, but from an early age decided to deal with it in a different way. And since girls are socialized to move inward to a relationship, um, they will often develop preoccupied or, or borderline traits, whereas boys tend to be socialized to reject relationships as a coping strategy. And so if they are rejected, abused, um, traumatized relationally as children, one of the, uh, a tendency f for men is to become avoidant personality disorder in which they are um, they they try to avoid uh, relationships and that's their you know we call that avoidant attachment style and the um, idea is, is that they're suffering just the same amount and and they're just as desperate for attachment as the person with borderline they're just as insecurely attached but they just express the uh, they express it differently and they cope with it differently. The borderline person copes with the terror of being alone by smothering other people and by uh, you know grasping for the other person and um, and it, and when they get hurt they attack. Whereas the avoidant person, when they are scared about losing someone, they just reject. They just like, you know, fuck it. I don't need anyone. I can do this by myself. I don't need human beings. I can be like Spock. I can be a robot and I don't need human beings when in fact they desperately need human beings. And so one of the, uh, an attractive coupling is between the avoidant person and the borderline person because the, the borderline uh, person um, gets someone who's close, but also gets someone who tends to not get too riled up. Avoidant people in general, when pushed uh, to, you know, relationally, they just sort of like, eh, I'm going to play it cool, <laughs> even though inside they're, they're, they're very much um, hurting. And avoidant people get something out of someone who's borderline because if an avoidant person starts to date, they, you know, they start going on dates with random people, people will perceive the avoidant person as um, not really there. They'll just be like, well, you know, I went on a date with him, but I don't think he's really into me because he hasn't called me in three weeks or something like that, even though all he's been doing is thinking about you. <laughs> but because he's avoidant and, uh, you know, really worried about being hurt and rejected, he just defaults to not calling you. And so 
if you have a normal attachment style, you're not going to do well with an avoidant person because you'll get a sense like, well, I don't think he's into me. So, you know, moving on in life. But a borderline person will pursue so hard that the avoidant person um, will uh, be attractive in that way. So the avoidant person is like, wow, this person really needs me. And wow, this person is really pursuing me and making and doing all the work f- for our relationship, which makes me feel good because I don't like to do the work because when I do work, it's vulnerable and, and then I'm likely to get hurt for it. And so uh, the borderline person with all this energy towards me, it's, it's, it's like I, I feel needed. I feel like I'm in a close relationship and, and it can feel very good. So the avoidant person and the borderline person fit very well together in that way and can have a very good relationship and, and with some work um, and some healing about their childhoods can be totally happy together. So there's nothing pathological about these two styles. But um, if things get bad, it can get real bad. And the um, uh, so there's that. So the other thing is, is that the uh, often what will happen if you ever meet couples like this, the borderline person will seem like a crazy person and the avoidant person will seem like an extremely sane person. The avoidant person will seem like a saint. They'll just be like, man, you really... I can't believe you're putting up with this stuff that the borderline person is doing, man, you know, she is psycho and you're, you're so normal. Like what's, you know, what's going on here. But after a while, if you really start looking at it, you realize, no, 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 the, the avoidant male is just as desperate, but just doesn't, is just very secretive about how much he's suffering and might not even know how much he's suffering. But the one thing he won't do is leave the relationship. Really. He might, kind of break up kind of, but really deep down, he needs that contact because he knows that if he breaks away from the borderline person, no one will pursue him the way the borderline person does, and he'll be alone for the rest of his life. And so I'm generalizing quite a bit. And, you know, there are absolutely, you know, um, exceptions to these rules and uh, people are complex, but this is a common configuration that I've seen. And what I also have seen is that the avoidant person when push comes to shove and when the conflict starts to escalate, the avoidant person actually starts act, starts acting borderline. The avoidant person starts to uh, become highly reactive. They start to pursue. They start to have delusional ideas about what's happening. And, and, then, and then both people end up sort of looking like borderlines to me. Um, so your questions are, patron, anonymous patron, you're saying, um, how have I helped couples with this. Well, to explain that, I would need um, you to take a full master's degree with me. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to be able to describe that. But in general, I'm always working with attachment. and I'm always trying to help people to heal from their attachment injuries. And so uh, a lot of it has to do with, uh, for myself, honestly, a lot of it has to do with managing my own countertransference because these sorts of people can really um, you know, induce a lot of emotion in me as a therapist. I mean, couples therapy has a ton of countertransference anyway, but if you have a borderline person and an avoidant person, you're going to have a, the therapist is going to have a lot of feelings. There's going to be a lot of anxiety and, you know, just a lot of issues. And so, and that's hard to deal with and it can absolutely screw things up. So that's one thing that I do. The other thing I do is I try to help them understand each other better because both people deep down, you know, uh, at the core, 
they want love and they are desperate for attachment and bonding with their partner. The the borderline person, the avoidant person, deep down, that's all they want. They they want what everyone wants, which is love, security, dedication, loyalty, um, to have fun together, to be romantic together. They want intimacy. They want they want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want to um, you know build a life together, but. Because of the constant, or not constant, but frequent triggers that occur in any relationship, particularly in a relationship like this, each of them are going to be highly reactive, basically on a daily basis, I've seen. And each of them, you know, at least once a day, or maybe a little less frequent, will have a crisis where they feel extremely hurt and their mood will plummet. And they will blame their partner for the way that they feel. And then it requires the partner to listen and to, uh, you know, be a good partner in that situation and and apologize. Uh, and that's very hard for people because it's vulnerable and um, they're mutually triggering each other. So I really try to help both people understand. So with the avoidant person, I'm trying to get them to understand that, they actually, you know, the avoidant person will come into therapy and be like, my wife is psycho. She freaks out at everything. Like all she ever does is completely just freak out. And I'll be like, okay, well, um, describe to me like a typical interaction like that. And so the avoidant person will tell me the story of like how the conflict began, all this kind of stuff. And at a, and at a certain point I will realize and, and the avoidant person will tell me, that the avoidant person was almost passive-aggressively being quiet or passive-aggressively being um, distant or stonewalling or something. So it's not that the borderline person was acting in a vacuum. The borderline person was freaking out and being quote-unquote psycho uh, at the same time that the avoidant person was passive-aggressively pulling away. So avoidant people... Again, avoidant people are just as hurt and just as angry as a borderline person, but the way of an avoidant person expresses their anger is through passive aggression. They will say, well, you know, I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. And when my borderline girlfriend starts to um, yell at me, I'm just going to act like I don't care. I'm just going to go to my laptop and I'm going to be like, you know what, I'm not dealing with this today. And... Although that's not necessarily a bad strategy, it can be a really an overt expression of aggression and hostility by the by the avoided person. And so, what I try to do is, uh, from the avoidant side, really try to help the avoided person understand that um, you know they they're they're playing a trick on themselves by telling themselves that they're not doing anything hostile, but really they are, and their silence and their inaction and their their you know the the fact that they're acting calm, cool, and collected is actually an attack on the other person, and that's how it's meant, and that's how the other person takes it. The borderline person receives that message loud and clear that you don't care about them, and that you reject them, and that you are judging them right now, and um, and so it's natural that the borderline person is going to be hurt by that. So uh, I, I've I've worked with many couples in, in that way. Um, and you ask, can it really be done? And I will say, absolutely. There's, uh, I've worked successfully with personality disorders my entire career. Um, 
it's hard work. <laughs> it can take time, but um, uh, and by time I mean it can take ten years. You know, it's it the the severity of the problem sometimes makes it really long to heal because it's it's one thing to sort of intellectually know what's happening. It's a whole other thing to actually heal from the wounds. You know, and you can do that in couples therapy. You can actually heal. And that's that's the, my best. That's my favorite form of of working with people like this is actually in couples therapy because you can really help people heal from their attachment wounds within the spousal relationship. You know, the spouse can act as a um, corrective experience for um, what had happened to them when they were younger. You also ask, how is it the, uh, that the avoidant person suffers? Uh, I think I might have answered that already. Um, yeah, like I said, the avoided person is terrified. They are anxious on the inside. They are really hurt. They're really scared. And they're just as traumatized as the borderline person. Um, how can how can you connect with them? Okay, so now I think the, the patron, anonymous patron, is actually asking for some advice about how they can connect with avoidant men, avoidant partner. Did, was there a – yeah, avoidant men. She, she's saying that she's attracted to avoidant men. Um, you know, that's hard because everyone has different sort of things here. But if, I think the thing is, is both people, you know, the borderline person, the avoidant person, again, you don't have to, you don't have to force a connection because the avoidant person wants a connection. So how do you help them to feel safe enough to express that? And that's really for both people, right? The borderline person wants a connection. The avoidant person wants a connection. How do you create an environment where both people are safe enough to actually express what is in their heart, which is a deep desire for connection? So uh, if you're asking for advice, I guess whatever that means to you in terms of helping your avoidant male partners feel safe. Uh, Because there's this notion that a lot of borderline people will have that they're not inherently lovable. You know, borderline people will be like, and avoidant people too, just be like, well, I'm not lovable, so I, so I have to force the other person to love me. And that's often kind of confirmed by the narratives that are constructed, you know, from past relationships. And that is a very destructive way of thinking about things because one, uh, that's, you know, hurt, harmful to your self-esteem. And two, basically it means that in order for you to have love, you have to sort of extract it from another human being. But that is directly opposite to the truth. When you actually try to extract and force love from another person, they tend to hate you, right? So the idea is, is you have to trust. You have to have faith. You have to have trust that in their heart they actually have deep love for you. And all you have to do is create a safe environment, and they will they will naturally express it, not because you've asked them, but because they want to. Everyone wants to, even avoidant men. They want to express that love. And avoided men are even more desperate to express that. They're more, even more desperate to have that um, than um, average men. <laughs> so um, you also ask, what can help to understand them better? Well, I don't know. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> is there any chance for a good relationship? Absolutely. Uh, everyone has problems is the thing. Uh, even, quote unquote, safe, secure, you know, uh, it, you know, um, securely attached people, people with secure attachments, with perfect childhoods, have massive problems in marriages. Every, everyone does. It's just, 
it's just, uh, you know, it's hard. Marriage is hard. Relationships are hard. And um, there's always going to be conflicts. And there's all, you know, we all have sensitivity to being hurt and to being rejected. And if and if you think that you're in the minority, you just, you know, you've accepted the narrative that a lot of people are trying to portray, that they're super cool and they nothing ever bothers them. <laughs> um, yeah, so... So in the same way that I have hope for securely attached people to optimize their relationship, I absolutely have hope for people with borderline and people with avoidant to optimize their relationship. I suppose at the severe end of the spectrum of avoidance and borderline, it would be a lot less optimistic. But I suspect by the nature of the way you're writing patron, anonymous patron, that you do not have a severe case of borderline, and therefore, um, absolutely, in your life, I would suspect you could, you know, have the same hopes and predictions of wonderfulness that anyone else had. I mean, the nice thing about being borderline on some level is that you are extremely focused on trying to find a good relationship. So, you know, some people with borderline, particularly people with mild cases, are able to really find excellent relationships because um, they it's almost their primary goal in life. And they, they spend a lot of time thinking about it and, and focusing on it and trying to better themselves and trying to improve things. And so, um, so sometimes, you know, you can, you can have better relationships than the average people. <laughs> so um, it's not, it's not just a, con sometimes you know there's some some pro to it some some people with mild borderline have a lot of empathy you know just have a ton of empathy for other people because they've spent their whole life really paying attention to other people now that's at the expense of paying attention to yourself which hopefully you're working on in therapy all right well that does it for that episode of psychology in seattle in which i respond to patron emails um I'm always encouraging people to send emails, but I have a huge backlog of questions. So um, if you could send maybe short questions, that would be great. We um, uh, have been getting short questions, which are great. And if you have questions for me and Umberto or me and Rebecca, uh, you, you know, you can send those in and uh, we will try to answer those. All right. Please take care of yourself out there because you deserve it. You really, 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 really do. Thank you.